One more brief announcement is that next Sunday is our three-year anniversary since planting this church. Yes. And as a way to celebrate that, uh, I've invited Pastor Tommy Schneider from Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara to come down and preach. So you guys are in for a treat. He's been here once before, uh, and you're going to love him if you haven't heard him. Uh, he's a wonderful encourager and a great teacher of the word. So uh, you'll be excited for next week. But this morning, open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. I usually take a little bit of time at the beginning of the message to... Um, introduce sort of the main theme of the section that we're going to be covering for the day, but I feel like this morning I can cut down on that time because there's been this ongoing theme for the last several weeks now, and really throughout the entire book of Hebrews, and you probably know the theme of Hebrews by now, right? It's that Jesus is better. He's greater Jesus is far more superior than anything else there is. The writer put it pretty succinctly in the last chapter when he said this in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises." So as we continue today into Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to see yet another case for why the new covenant of Jesus is better than the old covenant of Moses or of the Jewish fathers. And this would have been really relevant for the first century Jewish Christians because what they were dealing with in that time was the temptation to go back to the laws and to the ceremonies and to the sacrifices of the old covenants. Um, and they were being warned not to do that. And yet today, right, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's still a whole lot of relevance that we can take because, look, while we might not turn back to Jewish religion as sort of a means to be approved by God, we might turn to a whole lot of other things other than Jesus Christ to try to deal with you know, what, what, what we might call sort of this unsettled conscience. Do you know what I mean when I'm talking about that, an unsettled conscience? You know, that, that sense, that inner sense that is within you? Well, we're going to give a moment for... Everybody just think about this right now. Just in our best of ability, draw into this moment as we're going to come into Hebrews chapter 9 and think about that feeling that we sometimes come when we come to worship God. Do you know what I'm talking about? That unsettled conscience, where you kind of feel like, am I good with God? And you might have this sense, almost a nagging awareness that you are a sinner and that you are broken and that you have fallen short of the things that God would ask of you. And so you have this sort of conscience within you that almost feels a sense of guilt, almost feels a sense of shame, a sense of unworthiness to come into the presence of God. But we're going to talk about that today because through Jesus Christ, we have been given access. We have been given acceptance to God. And it wasn't always the case. And so let's have a look at God's word. Let's listen to what the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us today in Hebrews chapter 9 
looking from verse 1 to verse 14. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations have thus been made, and the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties." But into the second section, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tents, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this powerful word that comes from you, Lord. You are living God, and we come as worshipers into this house today. Lord, not with a conscience that is defiled, not with a conscience of dead works, but a conscience that has been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray that that would be so for every person who has come into this house today. Lord, we want to worship you. We want to praise you because you're worthy and you've given us full acceptance before a holy and righteous God. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 9 is setting up another comparison. He's going to compare old covenant worship with new covenant worship. And he starts with the old when he says this. He says, now even the first covenant or the old covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. So at the center of every faith, as human beings, we're going to worship. We all are going to worship something. The question is, what are you worshiping? And under the old covenant for the Jews, there was this elaborate system of worship. There were regulations, rules for how a person was allowed to worship the Lord. 
God had even appointed a certain place where people could worship him. In the Old Covenant, you couldn't just worship God, you know, anywhere that you wanted, in any way that you wished. When God was worshipped in the Old Covenant, there was regulated worship that occurred in a place of holiness. So what was this place of holiness? It was, in that time, the tent or the tabernacle or what would later become the temple. And so in verse 2, the writer's now going to describe this earthly place of worship from the Old Covenant. It says, For a tent was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. And this is called the holy place. All right, so the writer has within his mind, and try as best as you can to imagine these things in your mind as we talk through them. There was this tent, this tabernacle, or again, later what would become a more permanent structure during the time of King Solomon that was called the temple. But uh, there was sort of a progression of that. In fact, the temple still stood in Jerusalem when this was written in the first century. But what we saw last week in chapter 8 in what almost seemed to be a prophetic thing from the writer of Hebrews, he says that what was old is ready to vanish away. And in 70 AD, the temple that stood there in Jerusalem was destroyed. If you go to Israel today, there is the Temple Mount, but there's no temple on that mount. Instead, there's actually an Islamic mosque. So there's no temple there anymore, and because there's no temple, there has not been this regulated worship in Israel since that point. But in the time when the Jews had the tents or the temple, what was worship like? Well, verse 2 tells us, that there was the tent prepared. So we're kind of going back to that time of the tabernacle in the wilderness type of thing, right? This was a literal structure, and it was built by human hands. Moses was provided with the instructions from God of how this, uh, this tent was to be built down to the exact measurements. You know, the, the sections had sort of the cubic feet that it was to be measured out by, It was down to the exact materials that God wanted it to be built with. And the whole idea is that this tent was to be a copy or a shadow of the heavenly reality. So what God was sort of doing was that here on earth, he wanted the Jews to have this tent that was something of a replica of God's throne room in heaven. You guys tracking with me? So let's look more into what this tent was like. It had two sections. So we're going to talk about the first section, and then we'll talk about the second section. So the first section was called the holy place. And inside the holy place, there were some various objects that are described to us here. There was the lampstand. So the lampstand was this candelabra. It had seven wicks, and it burned with oil. And the lampstand had a practical purpose, of course. It was used to give light to the tent. (laughs) But it also had a spiritual purpose as well. Because remembering that this was a shadow or a copy of the heavenly reality, the lampstand also represents to us that Jesus is the light of the world. 
seven wits being the number of perfection or completion in the kingdom of God. And then there was the table. There was the bread of presence. And in that first section, there was just this, this table that was there to the side. And it had bread on it. There were 12 loaves of bread in total, uh, one loaf of bread for each of the tribes of Israel. But that's not all that the bread represented, right? It would point to us further that Jesus is the bread of life. And so that's sort of the first section that's described to us. So you've got the lampstand and the bread of presence, and this was called the holy place. And the holy place was entered daily by the priests. They would go and they would tend to those articles within. Each day, the wicks would be trimmed, the oil would be replenished. Every week on the Sabbath, the bread would be replaced, new loaves would be put out, and the priests would eat those 12 loaves uh, from the week before. And this was the daily and the weekly service of the priests as they stood in service to God in the tents. But there's another section of the tents that is described in verses 3 through 4. It says, beyond the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the gold urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. So separating, right, this holy place from the most holy place, it says there was a second curtain. This curtain was also known as the veil. And this veil was the veil that God tore in two from top to bottom when Jesus died, but we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves right now. At this time, the veil served to separate the two sections. And why is that? Well, because beyond the veil was the holy presence of God. Within that inner sanctuary, it was a 15 by 15 by 15 foot cube, basically. And within it was the Shekinah glory of God that would manifest upon this ark that dwelled there within. And inside that most holy section, we have described to us what those objects were. First, there was the golden altar of incense. This is where incense offerings would be made to God, representing the prayers of the people going up to God. But then there was the Ark of the Covenants. And this was a very interesting, kind of fascinating box or cabinet type of thing that would manifest. God's presence would appear over this box. And this, this ark was covered on all sides with gold. It was very ornate. It was beautiful. You can Google some images or watch Indiana Jones to learn more. Right? <laughs> but really, you should read about it in Scripture. Because the Ark of the Covenant is pretty cool. It's, it's very interesting. And there were three things that were told here in Hebrews 9 that were kept inside of the Ark. First, it had a golden urn that was holding manna. And manna was that miraculous food that God provided to the children of Israel every morning in the wilderness years. And they would gather it up each day and they'd make it into dough and then they'd fry the dough. And so manna would have been very similar to mochi donuts, right? Um, 
I actually believe that donuts and manna were probably very similar in, in substance. But second, it had Aaron's staff that budded. Uh, there was this time when Aaron's priesthood was being challenged by the other tribes, and God said, I want you to take a staff from each tribe, and the one staff that, that buds, I want that to show my approval. And of course, Aaron's staff budded with um, blossoms and almonds, showing that Aaron was God's high priest. And then third, the ark held the tablets of the covenant. These were the two stones that had the, uh, the Ten Commandments that were written upon them that Moses had received from God when he was on Mount Sinai. Remember that this was the second copy because Moses broke the first set uh, when he came off of that mountain and saw the people worshiping a golden calf. But those three objects, right, the urn with the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the the tablets of the covenant, they were inside of the ark. But then it tells us what was on top of the ark, verse 5. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now, listen, cherubim are not cute little chubby babies with wings, contrary to your Christmas opinions, right? Cherubim are these Mighty, angelic being. There's different types of angels that are spoken about in the Bible. There's cherubim, there's seraphim, there's archangels, there's these different types of angels. So these cherubim, they are these mighty, angelic beings that with their wings would reach out over the mercy seat. And it was upon the mercy seat that that blood would be sprinkled upon it on the day of atonement. This was done once a year, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. But, but look with me at the end of verse 5, right? After the, after the writer has described this tense, what you have here is there's this... Hold on, where, where am I? So, so there's this tent, right? And, and I just want to remind you guys that... This tent, it's really interesting, and I've tried to des- describe it to you. Do you have the mental picture in your mind, hopefully? This was only a shadow, a copy, like a, a life-size model of what was the heavenly reality. There's actually something in heaven that is really the, the true version of what we've just talked about. And at the end of verse 5, it says this, of these things we cannot now speak of in detail. And it's interesting because... I just gave kind of a lot of detail about it, but we need to include ourselves in the we because although the details of the tent or the temple, they're very fascinating, we can spend our entire message going to how every element of the tent points us to Jesus and how he's represented through it all. But instead of going through the details, looking at the shadow, looking at the copy of the thing, in the following verses, you know what we get to do? We get to go straight to the reality. We get to look at Jesus. And so in your own time, I'd encourage you with your Bible and with the Holy Spirit, you go read all of those places that speak of the old covenant worship system. You should pray and ask God to teach you those things and show you the greater reality that is behind all of those things that are in books like Leviticus. You ever read Leviticus and you just kind of say, why? I'll tell you why. Jesus. 
It's all pointing us to him. And so let's, let's get there. Moving on to verses 6 and 7, it says, These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So that tent of meeting, it was prepared, it was built, it was maintained by the Levitical priests all year long, and every single day, the priests would go into that first section, the, the holy place. They would perform their ritual duties, like, like I said, trimming the candles, replenishing the, the bread and the oil. But into that second section, the section that's called the most holy place, only the high priest could go in there. And he couldn't go in there whenever he felt like it. You know, the high priest wasn't like, hey guys, you know, I'm kind of having a tough day. I'm going to go spend some time with the Lord in the Holy of Holies and, you know, pray and worship for a little while. No. He went into the most holy place, the place that was beyond the veil, the place where God's glory was manifest. He would only go in there once a year and not without taking blood. On that one day when the high priest would enter into the most holy place, he did so with fear and with trembling before God. He had to bring blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. A sinner could not stand before a holy God without having an offering for sin. So the high priest would actually enter the holy of holies twice on that one day. He would first enter in to offer a sacrifice for his own sins, and then he'd come out and he'd go in a second time to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But that sacrificial offering, that blood that was put upon the mercy seat, it would only be good for one year until it had to be done again the following year on that appointed day in that appointed way. And do you know what that day was called? was called the Day of Atonement, or in Hebrew, Yom Kippur. Do you happen to know when that day is on the Jewish calendar? Today, into tomorrow. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, begins today at sundown, and it goes through to tomorrow. That's interesting. We'll get to that. How do you think the high priest slept the night before, knowing that the next day he would enter into the most holy place with a basin of blood that he was to sprinkle upon the mercy seat? Do you think he was Disneyland happy? Just like, oh, I can't wait to go in there tomorrow. Let me just tell you some stories real quick about the ark. So one time during the reign of King David, the ark had been captured by the Philistines, and David wanted to bring it back to Jerusalem, and so he has it transported, and, and the Philistines had ditched it because the ark was causing them tumors, and so they sent it away on this cart with golden rats 
You just got to read the story and figure out why. And so it, it ends up in this guy's house, and the house, God brings blessing upon that house. But David comes, and he brings a new cart, and he puts the ark on that new cart, and they go, and they're just having a great time, and they're worshiping on their way to Jerusalem. And then they hit like a little pothole, and the cart kind of, you know, falls, and, and the ark is about to collapse onto the ground, you know, and this seems like we can't let this fall off the cart. And so this guy, Uzziah, reaches out and he touches the ark to stabilize it so it wouldn't fall off the cart and hit the ground and break. And so what happens? God strikes Uzziah dead. And everyone's like, what the heck? David's like, David was like mad at God. What, what, what is this? And so they kind of veered off and parked it in this other guy's house. And then... David goes back to Jerusalem, and they go and they read the scriptures, and they find out, oh, we did this all wrong. See, God instructed that the ark was to be carried on poles. There were these rings on the sides that poles would go through, and it was to be carried by Levites, specifically carried by the sons uh, or the Kohathites, and it was to be carried upon their shoulders, and here they are bringing it along in a cart, Right? And so I wonder if the high priest, the day before the Day of Atonement, reread through all the regulations one more time just to make sure all of his ducks were in a row. And then on the Day of Atonement, as the high priest would prepare there at the temple or at the tent courts to prepare to go in, the other priests in the first section, they had a rope. And they tied that rope to the ankle of the high priest. And on the rope or on the robe of the high priest, they would sew some bells. Why is this? Well, as the high priest would enter into the most holy place, if they heard bells, he was still alive. But if they heard a big thud and no more jingle bells, then they pulled him back out with the rope. Because if anyone else entered in, who wasn't the high priest, they could be struck dead in that most holy place. Aren't you so glad that that does not define your Monday morning tomorrow? So when you pour yourself a cup of coffee tomorrow and you open your Bible and you got some worship music playing in the background, you can just thank Jesus that he is your high priest. Because all of these worship regulations, they're telling us something. What are these regulations telling us? They're telling us that there is to be separation between a holy God and sinners. And that blood sacrifice was required to bridge that separation. And even still, it was never complete in the Old Covenant. Sin always remained year after year. And so then in verse 8... The Holy Spirit wants to tell us something. He wants to tell us something even today on the Day of Atonement. By the way, I didn't plan that. You know, when, when we were going through scheduling this teaching series, I didn't have my Jewish calendar out and, and say, you know, on the Day of Atonement, I really want us to be in Hebrews chapter 9. But, but this is the cool thing about our God, and this is the amazing thing about when you just are faithful to preach God's word, and what I believe should be done in an expositional manner, you know, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible, it is incredible how God just lines things up by his Holy Spirit at just the right time. 
When I try to get too fancy and I try to be all, you know, have ingenuity to try to fit things all together, it just sucks, just <laughs> drops flat. When I just follow God's word and you just preach God's word, things line up where it's like, we're talking about the day of atonement on the day of atonement. I mean, come on. It's amazing. But anyways, I digress. Verse 8 and 9. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the most holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is, in, is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So the Holy Spirit had a message to that first century Hebrew audience, and he's got a message for us today, and it's this. Regulations for worship and holy places and elaborate laws and ceremonies and sacrificial offerings, whatever they may be, but especially the ones that are associated with the old covenant system, there was a time for that. It had its place in the past, but it is now obsolete. Why? Because something new has come that is so much better. Something better had to come. A time of reformation needed to take place. Why? Because according to all those arrangements of gifts and sacrifices that we've just discussed, you know, those daily offerings in the holy place and, and the specific blood sacrifice that was to be offered once a year in the most holy place by the high priest, there was a time for that. However, these laws, these ceremonies, these sacrifices, do you realize something? They never perfected the conscience of the worshiper. Rather, it left them with a continual reminder day after day, year after year, a, a, a nagging sense of an inner conscience that told them, God is holy and we are not. Our sin has separated us from our God. And that truth would weigh heavy on the conscience of the worshiper. Fear and trembling was the tone of the old covenant worshiper. For the high priest even, the holiest man in all of Israel, who, who got it all right and had everything ready for him to go in on that one day, even then his conscience said to him, I might die if I get this wrong. And the Jews would always try to get it right, but they would often get it wrong. No matter how hard they tried, they could never keep the 613 commandments of God's law. It was too heavy. Uh, they couldn't keep the law, and therefore they could never be perfected. So what would they do? Well, go ahead. Let's, let's bring it down to 10. We can do 10. 10 commandments. If we follow those, we'll be good, right? Well, no. Let, let, let's bring it down to two commandments. You know, even if we just bring it down to two, love God and love people. We got this. We can do this. But even still, there was a conscience that bore witness to them that says, I cannot do it. I always come short. 
I always fail. No matter how hard I try to keep God's law, I can never keep it perfectly. And so guilt and shame of sin was always upon the conscience of the worshiper. Maybe that's where you're at. It becomes this. Eat the right food. Drink the right stuff. Wash the correct way. All these regulations of worship, what do they do? They, they would speak to us about a separation that existed between sinful man and a holy God. Even today, observing Jews have these regulations on Yom Kippur. One website says this, For nearly 26 hours, we afflict our souls. We abstain from food and drink, do not wash or apply lotions or creams, we do not wear leather footwear. I don't know why, but... And then we, we abstain from marital relations. Instead, we spend the day in synagogue praying for forgiveness. For the Israelite worshiper, it was the flesh that was always trying to keep the rules. If I go with regularity every day or every week and I wear the right clothes, I say the right things, have the right shoes, then maybe God would be pleased with me. And look, the Jews did a pretty good job at times. There were times when Israel got it really right, and there were times when Israel got it really wrong. And when they got it right, God would bless them. And when they got it wrong, God would curse them. And through all of those blessings and cursings, what was going on inside of the worshiper? Well, there was this unsettled conscience that said, I can never be holy enough before a holy God. I, I can't do it. And with this afflicted soul, the worshiper would always cry out for forgiveness. Oh God, can you forgive me this time? God, will you please forgive me this time? I know I've come to you so many times, but will you forgive me this time? And then they could never obtain that sense within themselves that they were indeed forgiven. Let's close in prayer. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Some of you like bowed your head to pray. I sure hope you didn't actually believe me right there. Could you imagine if we stopped right there? No. All right. We're coming in to one of my favorite words in the New Testament. You know what that word is? But. We are about to turn a huge corner here at verse 11 as we now look to the reality of Jesus Christ. Hold on to your seat, folks. Here we go. But. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the 
the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Can somebody say hallelujah? Amen. When Christ, the Son of God, appeared as our high priest of good things that what? Have come. Jesus came from heaven to earth as our high priest, not a priest after the old covenants, but a priest of the new covenant, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I sure hope things are clicking for you now in Hebrews. And notice the past tense of the good things. It says, good things have come. That is because the work of Jesus is finished. Our high priest sat down at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, good things have come. Good things are to be received today by grace through faith because you have instant and bold access to your heavenly Father to receive his grace because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus died on a cross, a perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. And when Jesus died on the cross, he offered up his life, his perfect life. And with his own blood, he paid the price of sin once and for all so that we can come freely and boldly to the most holy place of God. Not the one that is made with hands, but the one that is eternal in the heavens, the one that God has made. And so, in the same way that the day that Jesus died, which was also on the weekend of the Day of Atonement, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was torn from the top to the bottom because no man could tear that veil. It was God who had to rent it in two, thus opening that inner sanctuary. No one but a high priest had ever seen that room before. And here it was laid bare and open, thus signifying we have full access into the holy of holies, the most holy place, but not the one made with hands. That temple was destroyed in 70 AD. The veil of heaven has been removed. We now have bold access to God's throne room through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Seriously, though, what was happening when Jesus bled and died on a cross? Why blood? It's what God decided. The life is in the blood. And there is a tangible sense of that, but there is a very real sense of that, that the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can purify us of our sin, of our guilt, of our shame. And it was Jesus who was both the perfect priest and the perfect offering who went into that throne room and in some way, by the eternal spirit, offered his own blood. And God saw it and he accepted it. Not only temporarily, but once and for all, forever, the blood of Christ has been received as the sufficient atonement for the sins of the world. And so in the highest level of reality, this has occurred in heaven when Jesus died on earth. It says in verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That word redemption is so important because it speaks to us of the salvation that we can have in Jesus Christ. 
It's already been secured for you in heaven. All you need to do is receive it from God. To be redeemed means to be purchased out of bondage, to be brought out of slavery. And everyone who sins is a, is a slave to sin. And your conscience tells you it's so. And so apart from Christ, who is our reality, if you do not have Jesus as your high priest and mediator, if you have not received by faith the cleansing blood of Jesus as the only provision to wash away your sin, whatever you want to call it, call it that. But I'm talking about what is on your conscience, that nagging sense that you can never be good enough. You will always come up short. You know what I'm talking about. Call it sin, call it whatever you want. Jesus paid for it. And unless you've received that, and I, I, I say receive because this comes by grace, you can't earn it, it can only be received until you've received it by grace, through faith, by believing that all of this is true about Jesus, until you've done that, you are enslaved. I'm, I'm not a slave. Yes, you are. If you don't have Jesus, you're a slave. You're a slave to sin, death, and the devil. Tell me, how are you going to get away from sin? Tell me, how are you going to avert death? Tell me that you have the ability to escape the schemes of the devil. Oh, I don't believe in the devil. Yeah, that's exactly what he wants you to think. Because so long as we don't believe in sin, so long as we think we have X amount of life and no and power over death, and so long as we think that there's no devil who wants to steal, kill, and destroy from you, you don't have redemption. But until you realize that it's only Jesus Christ who can set you free, and those whom the Son has set free are free indeed. Amen? Amen. And so only Jesus, by his perfect blood, can you be set free. Only then will you experience reality. Do you know reality? Because if you don't have Jesus, you're living an illusion. You're following a shadow. You're going after a copy. The heavens and the earth declare his glory. If you don't know Jesus, you're living an illusion. But until you've come to Jesus and received the blood of the only begotten Son for the forgiveness of your sins, then and only then can you really have real life. So bring the real you to the real Jesus. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, who offered up himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray. This time for real. Thank you, Jesus, for your redemption that was purchased by your blood. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're here in our midst right now, moving and working in our hearts so that we could see this reality. I pray for every last person in this room, every man, every woman, every child, that would bring the real them to the real Jesus, that they would experience you, maybe for the first time, but I know certainly for myself that this 
reminds me I have full access. I have full acceptance to God, and I can come boldly with a clear conscience before you. Thank you, Jesus.